Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty Savior for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Thus he has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and has remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our ancestor Abraham to grant us that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins. By the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. That is the song of Zechariah. Luke 3 picks up the story of his son. In the 15th year of the reign, of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch over Galilee, his brother Philip was tetrarch over Iteria and Trachonitis, and Licinius was tetrarch over Abilene, during the high priesthood of Caiaphas and Annas, the word of of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. And he went all around the region of the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, a voice crying out, In the wilderness prepare a way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled up and every mountain and hill made low. And the crooked roads will be made straight and the rough places made smooth. And all people will see the salvation of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. I get Zechariah. Zechariah worked in the temple. He spent his life in the temple. I get that. Most of my time is spent either in this temple or around this temple or thinking about ways to improve this temple. I get that. Zechariah encountered God's presence in the temple. And I've encountered God's presence here during a communion service, watching people pray together in, in words that are sung and others that have been spoken. I've encountered the presence of God. I get it. My life is around the temple. And like Zechariah, I get paid by the temple. But I also get John, his son. John knew, and I believe it is true, both biblically and experientially, that you have a much better chance of encountering God in the desert or the wilderness than you actually do in the temple. Look at all of God's people who spent a good part, if not the majority of their lives, in the desert or in the wilderness. There was Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. The people of Israel who escaped from Egypt spent 40 years wandering in the desert wilderness. Elijah, perhaps the greatest of the prophets, spent a lot of his time in the desert wilderness. And then after John the Baptist, Jesus himself will be sent by the Holy Spirit for 40 days into that desert. 
I agree with John. The temple's important. But by and large, we are more likely to encounter God in the desert. I think that's true because in the desert, there are a few distractions. In the desert, in our independence is not a virtue or even a help. But rather, one doesn't survive the desert. One doesn't wander effectively in the wilderness unless you are dependent. You can trust God and you can trust the other people who are with you. And I find that folks that spend time in the desert physically, geographically, metaphorically, have a real clarity about who God is and what God wants from them. In fact, many people interpret Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, uh, the way that I uh, read it to you this morning. A voice calling out, pause, in the desert prepare the way for the Lord. Because that was their sense, that where God is going to show up is in the desert. Ray Vanderland is fond of pointing out that in the Bible, when God talks about the promised land, God calls it the land that I'm giving you. When God talks about Egypt, God calls it Pharaoh's land. But when God talks about the desert, God says, my land. God is 60 to 100 times, if you count all the verses in the Bible, more likely to speak in the desert than in any place else. And when you watch the wilderness desert wanderings of God's people for 40 years, the deeper they get into the desert, the more miraculous things occur to them. Some people took so seriously this verse, in the desert prepare a way for the Lord, that they actually picked up, left Jerusalem, and went out to the desert. They were called Essenes. And they settled in what would seem to be the middle of nowhere, a a, a desert, rocky area near the Dead Sea. This place called Qumran is where in 1948, uh, a Bedouin boy discovered what are called the Dead Sea Scrolls to this day. Because they devoted their lives to going out in the desert and copying over God's word. And they expected to meet God there. Uh, one of our worship leaders, Daryl Smith, in New Heights put it this way. He said, what you find among the Essenes are people who left everything they thought was permanent because they lived in this wonderful city of Jerusalem and wonderful condo-like dwellings. And then they, they went out to the desert to find what really is permanent. The presence and the power of God. There's something about the desert and the desert experience. Now, sometimes we don't get a choice and we just get tossed into the desert. Like the people of Israel. Like Jesus driven by the Holy Spirit. Uh, This past Thursday night, I I led um, or spoke at a a worship service for people who have uh, lost children. Their children predeceased them. I, I can't imagine the pain that people experience there. But that's a desert. Sometimes transitions in life difficulties in relationship, economic changes, put us in a desert. And when we're there, sometimes we experience with greater clarity who God is and what God wants from us. But for those of us who haven't been thrust in the desert, John gives us an option this morning, and that is to choose to go there, to go to the desert on our own that we might meet and experience God, to prepare ourselves that God may come in to us. And that's what I want to talk with you about this morning, about going to the desert. Now, for some people, desert may just be a time of solitude. 
just in the midst of this busy Advent Christmas season, carving out some time. For others, it will be carving out a place. For others, it will involve a radical reorientation of the way that you are currently carrying out your life's business so that you would make space for the coming of God. There's a word that the Bible uses to, to talk about creating room and space for the coming God, and that word is repentance. It's a little bit like Clarence talked with the children about when a family would come over to visit, and so they began to pick things up and clean, and clean things up. Uh, they made room. They made a space uh, for company. And in many ways, that's what prepare the way of the Lord means. Make a place, make a room for him. Now, a lot of us, I think, would be interested in making room, but we want to do it by just a simple rearrangement. A lot of us kind of uh, do like I do. A couple weeks ago, my wife got out the Christmas decorations. And so one of our decorations we usually have out is a ceramic Christmas tree that uh, more than 30 years ago, the secretary uh, that I worked with um, in Durham, North Carolina, made for me and for Pam. So we get it out and light it up every year. Well, this year she decided to put it on a counter in the kitchen. And she decided to put it in a place where, well, I like to put my stuff. You know, the bills I haven't paid yet, notes to self, old scriptures I've been memorizing on a card, some loose change, occasionally an uncashed check. They're all there stacked up. And she said to me, you need to go through that stuff and clean it out because the little tree is going there. So I saw that she left the room. So I gathered up my stuff and I walked into the bedroom because she wasn't there. And on her dresser, I have a, like a little valet where I've got a few other things that I keep. And I took all my stuff and got ready to dump it on there. Just at that moment, she walked in. She said, that's not what I was talking about. Well, I just wanted a minor change or arrangement. Just a little bit of a rearrangement. I really didn't want to clean out. And I really wasn't making any room. When we repent, when we prepare, when we make room, we think in it, of it in this terms. How will the visitor see our house or our life? You know, the scratches on the door I'm used to, the pile of clothes over in a corner, or the newspaper not yet recycled. I mean, I'm used to that. I can live with that. But what about the people coming to visit? Will they notice? Part of repentance is, is looking at it from the perspective of the one who's coming. What do they think of this space? Will they be able to dwell in this space? I hesitate to tell the story, but, but it is true. I can't hide from it. Um, because the car that I drive is a wonderful car. It's the church's car. And, and I've had it uh, for six years. And it's sort of a second office. So the message that I preached Thursday night is in the back seat. Three, three books I haven't read are in uh, the back seat. Some stuff that I meant to take over to Dad's house but keep forgetting every time I'm there is in the back seat. And then there's the Dr. Pepper stains and the Bill Miller tea stain in the, in the front seat. But it's okay. I'm used to it. But if I ever sell that car or the church sells it, what does the new buyer think? Are they particularly fond of the stains? Do they want a copy of a sermon from three years ago? To look at it from the perspective of the one who's coming. The habits, the thought patterns, the activities of my life, I've learned to live with. I'm okay with them or I wouldn't do them with regularity. 
But what do they look like to Jesus when he's coming? That's what repentance is. Repentance is he's coming. What kind of room will I make for him? Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying if you don't clean up, he doesn't come. I'm not saying Clarence's family, uh, you know, you tell them, well, we're not clean, so they don't show up. No, they're coming either way. It's what will they find when they get there. He's, he's coming either way. This, uh, a couple months ago, we went on a short trip, and so that my elderly dogs didn't have to go to the kennel, uh, my sons took turns coming over and spending the night and uh, watching over animals. Um, and I thought about my two son, older sons' rooms. One's been turned into a storeroom, and the other is a guest room, and the only evidence that my son was ever in there is I think there's like one certificate hanging on a wall still. It's not their room. It's not their place, but, but we don't expect them to stay. I won't say we don't want them to stay, but we don't expect them to stay. We're not set up. That's not their room. It's not prepared. Jesus is coming. What will he find when he comes to our life? He's going to come either way. My friend Scott Hare uh, pointed it out this way. He said it's a little bit like surfing. Now you have to understand, Scott is not a surfer, but he did stay at a hotel on the beach in Israel this summer. And he said, you know, you can't make the waves appear. But you can be ready. You can be close. Your board can be ready. And when the time comes, if you so choose, you can ride it. You can't make the waves come. You can't make the waves go. The waves are coming. Will you be ready? Michael Crocker, another one of our pastors, though, had another take. He said he was listening to NPR this week, and they were talking about Alex Rodriguez, the third baseman for the Yankees, who's facing surgery. Uh, in January, but they said that they couldn't do the surgery on A-Rod until he did prehab. Prehab first. Well, the surgery wouldn't, wouldn't work as well. There is, there is that coming of Jesus, which can and does change everything, but will we have done what is appropriate ahead of time for him to come? Let me say it another way. He's coming. But will he find enough space so he can stick around? That's the question of Advent. And maybe you're thinking, well, he'd never come to me. Really? Look at the listing of the officials in Luke 3. I'll just run them down for you again. It starts with an emperor, moves to a Roman governor, moves to three regional kings, tetrarchs, then to the high priest of Jerusalem, And it's like, not him, not him, not him, not him, not them. And skips all of them and comes to John, son of Zechariah, out in the middle of nowhere. He can find you. He will find you. He will come. But will there be a space? And you might say, well, not yet, it's too cluttered. That's all right. He'll come. But let's just give him space so that when he comes, he can stick around. Because he will come no matter the clutter, no matter the size of the skeleton in the closet, no matter the darkness that we think uh, shrouds our life. None of those matter. John is talking as a prophet saying he's going to come. 
He will come. You have no situation that can ever keep him from coming. But will you be open enough for him to stick around? Michael talked about um, when he was growing up in his parents' house, there was a painting uh, that was set in in Detroit. And in in the painting, there are uh, burned out shells of buildings. Uh, it's, It's not a nice scene. I assume it's the aftermath of the race riots in 1967. Uh, But in the middle of this destruction, in the middle of this scarred landscape, in this painting there is an artist sitting on a chair, working at an easel, painting a beautiful scene. Something beautiful in the midst of the clutter. Light in the midst of the darkness. There's nothing in our life that can keep Jesus from coming. And he'll stay if we give him room. The question for us is, will we give him room? Will we give him room?